So, good afternoon, Sangha. So, following on Winnie's beautiful instructions this morning on mindfulness of the body and mindfulness, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that topic right now. And, uh, uh, you know, you could, people have done as you know, a million books on the topic, doctoral dissertations on the topic. So it was hard for me to figure out what to talk about in like 50 minutes. (laughs) That would be most useful. So, um, but here it goes. So first of all, I want to read to you two uh, separate um, quotes from wise elders, and we love our elders, right? The first is actually uh, labeled as uh, the sayings of an old Cherokee grandfather. And in Indian country, we're a little bit skeptical because we don't know where these things really came from. But I asked a a dear friend of mine, Pam Jumper Thurman, who's a world Cherokee scholar, And I said, is that really a Cherokee story? She said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's one of ours. (laughs) So I will continue that labeling. So this is the story. And I'm sure many of you have heard this, because I've actually told this one a lot, a lot. An old Cherokee grandfather is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on, on inside me, he said to the boy. It is a terrible fight and it is between two wolves. One wolf is evil. They have anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, and ego. He continued, and the other wolf is good. They have wisdom, joy, peace, patience, serenity, determination, humility, kindness, empathy, generosity, and a lot of other very positive qualities. And the grandfather said to his grandson, the same fight is going on inside you and inside every person too. And then the grandson thought about it for a second and he then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? And the old Cherokee said, the one you feed. But then we have this other old Dhamma grandfather. I like to think of him as an indigenous grandfather, but it doesn't matter. Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah. And this is what Ajahn Chah said. He said, this path, this eightfold path, Maga, the force of the path, consists of virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. The framework for training the heart. Their true meaning is not to be found in these words, but dwells in the depths of our hearts. However, if the factors of the Eightfold Path are weak and timid, the defilements will possess our minds. If Maga, with two G's, thank you, (laughs) 
If Maga, the path is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. If it's the defilements that are powerful and brave, while the path is feeble and frail, the defilements conquer our hearts. As Dharma practice develops in the heart, these two forces have a battle, have to battle it out at every step of the way. It's like there are two people arguing inside the mind, but it's just the path of Dhamma and the defilement struggling to win domination of the heart. The path guides and fosters our ability to see clearly. As long as we are able to see clearly, the defilements will be losing ground. But if we are shaky, whenever defilements regroup and regain their strength, the path will be routed as defilements take its place. The two sides will continue to fight it out until eventually there is a victor and the whole affair is settled. That sounds like pretty much the same (laughs) statements to me. So I want to talk about... Uh, And I wanted just to say that I think that is one of the foundational um, practices that we're doing. It's, you know, to see clearly with mindfulness, with real mindfulness, with uh, right mindfulness, I should say, um, to see clearly what is going on in the heart at any moment so we can know what to feed and what not to feed. So, you know, one way to think about the path or our well-being and the well-being of those around us is that there's only 52, you know, in the Abhidhamma, which is this most incredible psychological, you know, Buddhist psychology document that's over 2,500 years old or maybe 2,000 years old, there's only 52 mental factors or things that could be in the heart or mind at any time. And, you know, having strong enough mindfulness and continuity of mindfulness to know what is the intention or thing that is motivating any um, action of body, speech, and mind in the moment, you know, that is really what determines our happiness or unhappiness. And the happiness and unhappiness of those who are around us. So that's really foundationally one very simple conceptual way to think about what we're doing here. And then conceptually, um, you know, we have two knowledge systems. We might have more, uh, but one way to think about what we're doing here is that we have two knowledge systems We have our conceptual minds that um, I'm sure many of us are very good at. We know the terms for fancy things and um, we know concepts of how the world is put together. Uh, And we also have this other knowledge system, which is really the basis of where freedom comes from or uh, enlightenment or where... Uh, we get insight into the true nature of things intuitively. Um, We can try to name what that is conceptually after, but intuitive knowledge oftentimes is knowledge without a lot of concepts to it. Because, you know, reality is a lot deeper than, you know, concepts about it. So we have these two uh, 
knowledge systems, a conceptual knowledge system, and our intuitive awareness. And with our mindfulness, we are strengthening our intuitive awareness. And um, I like to say that mindfulness is the data collection system for intuitive awareness. So mindfulness collects, just watches what is happening without a lot of conceptual reduction. And uh, that builds up the strength of intuitive awareness. And that's where insight arises, where deep insight arises into uh, reality. And that's what uh, profoundly frees us from suffering. When we don't expect things to be other than how they are, it can really help us out a lot. So our two knowledge systems. And mindfulness practice, or satipatthana practice, vipassana, insight meditation, engages both of them. But probably with more emphasis on intuitive awareness. Conceptual awareness helps us um, maybe points to what's happening. It's like concepts are the finger pointing at the moon, but they're not the moon, right? And intuitive awareness shows us the moon. So this is the Satipatthana Sutta. And we, many of us probably know that that's where this wonderful um, insight, Vipassana, mindfulness meditation practice comes from. It comes from... uh, probably three suttas in the Pali canon of Buddhist texts in the Theravada early Buddhist tradition, the Satipatthana Sutta. And this is what it says. It says, this is the only way, O bhikkhus, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the, the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path for the attainment of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, bhikkhus, a nun dwells exertive, clearly seeing, mindful, observing, watching the body and the body, removing covetousness and displeasure, discontent in regard to the world. The monk dwells exertive, clearly aware, mindful, observing feelings and feelings, removing covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. They dwell exertive, clearly aware, mindful, observing the mind and the mind, removing covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. They dwell exertive, clearly aware, mindful, observing dhammas in the dhammas, removing covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. So I'd like you to uh, take this in as much as you can intuitively. Just rest back and let it fall someplace around your heart and... You don't need to engage too much intellectually with it. Just let it rest and slip in. So those are the four foundations of mindfulness. 
mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tone, which is uh, the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, mindfulness of mind, which are thoughts and emotions and mind states, and then uh, mindfulness of dhammas, which um, our dear Sangha member, the Venerable Analyo, has said now, we know for sure contains the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. I personally think that um, I've actually tried this a, a number of times of seeing if anything can arise in my awareness that isn't within those four foundations, and I don't think there is anything. So, I mean, when we get carried away or we don't know what's happening, you know, that's part of confusion in the mind. And that's, you know, probably one of the hindrances there, right? Or thinking, you know, what's underneath any of those things or what's underneath our craving, all of those, anything that we can be aware of can be uh, put into those, uh, the framework of the four foundations. And I think when we're starting to practice, that's not a bad way to go. I think later on, uh, you know, when we're in uh, deep practice, uh, we might not need to bring concepts into it as much, but in the beginning, I think that can be very helpful. Particularly when we're struggling and not knowing what to do in a moment. You know, we can say, well, what is being known right now? What of the four foundations is being known right now? So, sati, mindfulness. Sati. So, sati, or mindfulness, clears up perceptual distortions. That's one of its central tasks. And that's what the Buddha taught, was that was what sati, or mindfulness, does. Um, because of uh, delusion, which we all have, none of this stuff is personal, by the way. If you're born a human, this is pretty much your lot in life. (laughs) You know, any greed, hatred, and delusion any of us have is probably particular to our social location, but it's absolutely not personal because that's just the nature of an unenlightened heart and mind, which I think probably... Unfortunately, 99% of us have. So, welcome to the excellent, exquisite club (laughs) of people who really need to practice this in order to feel some health. So, sati sati helps the automatization of habitual reactions and perceptions. You know, we walk around in life and, you know, we're adults, pretty smart people, we think we know what things are all the time, and we never question that. And that's what sati does, mindfulness does, it kind of breaks down uh, that uh, perceptual distortion that, you know, we're, that is built into us. You know, as an example of that, you know, I'm a pretty, I'm a, you know, consider myself incredibly progressive, old woman of color who grew up, you know, pretty, um, working class or less, first-generation college student. And, um, 
you know, I feel like I do social justice for a living. I, you know, work at a school of social work and, you know, that's what we say we do. But I see sexism, racism, homophobia, classism, educationalism, all of that in this heart and mind on a pretty regular level. You know, when you're seeing closely, that's what's there. And we don't need to, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'll wince when I see it, but then I'll also embrace and love the wince, right? And uh, it's not about uh, getting rid of all those things, sure. I think that we're practicing to get rid of them when we see them clearly. But even deeper than that, and probably in the beginning stages, is not basing any action that we have in the world based on those intentions or underneath those intentions of greed, hatred, and delusion. Does that make sense? It's not that we're not going to have them. We just want to step back and see when we're acting in the world, what is our intention under that or what's informing that perspective. And if it's any of those things that are pretty uh, not very helpful, if it's the bad wolf talking or if it's greed, hatred, and delusion, we just want to step back and wait for that to clear and set intentional, really positive intentions for our actions in the world. Because um, karma rests on the tip of intention. It's all about intention. So um, there are some very, very common uh, distortions of perception related to the three characteristics of existence. I know many of you know those. And those three characteristics are, and this is where we don't see clearly, and the distortions are based on this. Um, The three marks of existence are that everything... And this is just one conceptual way to talk about it. Uh, Everything is imperfect. You know, you're not going to find anything that's perfect. Or if it's perfect, it's going to be perfect for five seconds and then it's going to (laughs) change. Because that's the second mark of existence is that everything is impermanent. And then the third is that everything is impersonal. Those are the three marks of existence that um, not seeing that clearly and not knowing that intuitively, not having insights about that that release us from thinking that those things are real, that's what really causes a lot of suffering in our heart. So what we're trying to do with our practice is to have an insight into those three things particularly. And some of the uh, views that we have, we have distorted views that um, are, you know, deep ideas about how the world works that inform our perceptions and thoughts are things like, this is the way it will be forever. Am I the only one who's felt that? Have you ever sat on your cushion and just felt like, oh my gosh, it's going to be like this forever? Or feeling so much lack of resilience and lack of strength because this is just too much for me to handle. Because underlying is the view 
that it is going to be here forever. And that's denying impermanence and denying denying impermanence and anicca. So that's one of the first unexamined assumptions. The second one is in order for this experience to be okay, it has to be pleasant. Am I the only one who thinks that way? I had a big old chocolate bar before I walked in here. (laughs) Over lunch we were talking about just how to let go of sugar because it is a pleasant experience for many of us. And that is not seeing clearly just how. Things can be pleasant, but uh, nothing is perfect. Nothing is so satisfying that you stop craving altogether. Have you ever had anything that stopped craving? Right. (laughs) And that's actually a wonderful thing to see in, uh, you know, day-to-day meditation practice, and particularly on retreat, like getting a drink that you want or something to eat that you want or um, whatever. You know, ever, everything in the uh, material realm, the conditioned material realm, you know, we think that if we just got this job or this partner or this amount of money or this house or if my body looked like this or whatever, that would be the foundation of our happiness. But... Uh, you know, we can, anytime we get any of those things, it's an excellent meditation object to see how long that satisfies us. Right? I mean, I'm going to go and get a cup of tea with, put a lot of honey in it. <laughs> and I really actually like to watch about how long the honey tastes really good. Because <laughs> it doesn't taste very good for very long. I mean, it's not that it tastes bad. But that initial hit of pleasant, it's not like it does anything to satisfy deeper, a deeper sense of, you know, craving or clinging. That craving and clinging is still there. Those things don't get rid of that. And that's a huge insight and a, a wonderful thing for us to see with mindfulness is just how little, uh, you know, getting what we want is <laughs> helpful for us. So that's the second one. In order for this to be okay, it should be pleasant. That's denying unsatisfactoriness or dukkha. You know, that's a dukkha right there. And then the third thing is, I am making this happen or this is happening to me. And I love that one. That's uh, denying conditionality, Uh, cause and effect, and anatta, selflessness, you know. That's challenging our egoic delusion and our egoic clinging, you know, our deep uh, felt sense of separateness that we all feel, which is a delusion. And, you know, we can see that the earth is telling us that, isn't it? (laughs) The earth is telling us, you know, what you do over here is impacting your relatives over here. So, and then there's a fourth deep unexamined assumption 
And that is, I think, getting back to the, um, the idea of just how satisfying things are. And that is we have uh, ideas in our mind of what is beautiful and what is desirable. And I think that at the spiritual level, you know, a lot of us have trained our heart and mind and have insights enough to have a different idea of what is beautiful and desirable than, you know, having this car or this house or this partner or this body or things like that. So those are the four uh, distortions of perception according to this wonderful sutta that I love in the canon, the Vipalasa Sutta. And in order to uproot those distortions, guess what you have to do? Mindfulness. <laughs> and that's what we are doing. We're strengthening our mindfulness, the clarity of our perception. We are undoing perceptual distortions that are come to our mind when we see something and we think we know what it is. When we can, with mindfulness, have an insight about that that's not the nature of things, you know, in our life and in the world. That's what lets us let go of things. And that's what uh, retrains our heart and mind. That's definitely feeding the good wolf. So, mindfulness. One way to think about mindfulness is that it holds things in the middle. You know, the Buddhist way is thought of the middle way. And that's what mindfulness does. It holds an object of awareness between obsession and denial, between indulgence and repression, between privilege and intolerance. It's letting go of those two extremes of an object of awareness and just holding them in objectivity between those two in order for us to see clearly. So the four foundations of mindfulness we know are the body, feeling tone, mind, and the dhammas. So let's talk for a minute about mindfulness of the body. Um, Winnie led us this morning on a beautiful, I just thought that was really beautiful. I was able to really sink into her guided meditation and just being in a room full of people who are practicing is also very helpful. It shows you the importance of sangha and the refuge of sangha of being able to practice. But mindfulness of the body, um, you know, we, many of us have an anchor usually in the breath, a breath, Um, But mindfulness of the body can be any sensations in the body. You know, the Buddha taught pretty explicitly about knowing what posture you're in. And that's one thing I'm still working on. (laughs) To know right now that I'm sitting. You know, and to just be aware, oh, I'm sitting right now. To know sitting, walking, standing, and lying down is, you know an excellent activity for mindfulness of the body. Right now, um, well, actually, the Venerable Anayo, one of our relatives who lives at the block here at BCBS, just wrote this beautiful new book on um, Satipatthana, the practice of it. And he has uh, three teachings about mindfulness of the body that I really love and that I practice. And uh, one is... um, Well, two of them are body scans. 
Do people like body scans? I love body scans. You know, they're an excellent way to start a sitting. I think body scans or metta practice are an excellent way to really ground the self in stability. But he is doing body scans. Uh, the one that I really love is he does body scans. Well, actually, this is what the Buddha taught. And this, you know, when the Buddha taught his son, Rahula, how to meditate, this is what he taught him. He taught him body scans of the four elements. He taught, the, he taught his son how to do a body scan of feeling earth in the body, air in the body, fire, which is temperature in the body, and water in the body. And not necessarily having to feel those things very distinctly, but, you know, just maybe a small concept here and there through the body scan. And then he would say, you know, he taught his son earth element internally, earth element externally, all the same. You know, that meditation, you know, uh, strengthens our... um, perceptual awareness, it strengthens our mindfulness so we can see clearly things, but it also seeds the mind to have certain insights, right? That is seeding the mind, and it is seeding the insight that, you know, we think we're different than nature. (laughs) I mean, we know right now it's kind of a ridiculous concept to think that we are somehow outside of nature. We are nature. And uh, doing that body scan and not, you know, um, you know, it just creates the conditions for a strong insight of, you know, what we really are, you know, nature to arise. So mindfulness of the body could be a, uh, it could be a body scan of just feeling it, could be a body scan of the four elements. Um, you know, the Buddha also taught in teaching about mindfulness of the body, he talks a lot about knowing the different body parts. And I think in the sutta there's 32 body parts or whatever. And uh, Analyo has reduced those to a body scan, you know, up and down, of first skin, then flesh, then bones. And I really love that one too. Because that also really, um, you know, gets away from all of these complicated things about who we think we are and what we're doing to the basics of actually, substantively, what are we? We are skin, flesh, and bones. And, you know, body scans. And again, you don't need to feel those things very distinctly. Um, but though you can, you know, when I do it, I picture those different things in my mind as I'm doing the body scan. But I think it seeds the insight of uh, selflessness to arise. It seeds that insight to come. And then um, there's also a wonderful, I think his third um, body scan for mindfulness of the body is just realizing we're impermanent. You know, the Buddha talked about uh, seeing the de- uh, uh, a decomposing corpse, you know, to see our body as an impermanent and see how it is changing towards decomposition. 
the older I get, the more I can see that pretty much every day. <laughs> Anybody else got that? <laughs> right? And I think that, you know, sometimes we see that and we get freaked out about it, but that's, that could be an insight. We want to see that. For me, I like it when I see that. Actually, my sitting group in Seattle is called the Crones. <laughs> we want to own that because that's insight that, yeah, we are impermanent and imperfect and impersonal. So to see that and to welcome, to see that more closely, to even investigate that can also seed the mind for insight to arise and, and see the fear of it and see all of the things that aging brings up in us, to see clearly the delusion and the greed of wanting it to be otherwise or the aversion of not wanting it to be like that. You know, that's an excellent thing to see with clarity. So that's the first foundation of mindfulness. So, um, boy, I'm out of time already. I wanted to talk a little bit about pain in the first foundation because pain can often arise a lot while we sit down to meditate. And uh, there's certain things that you can do you know, uh, we want to anchor our attention in something, and when strong pain arises, uh, first maybe do an investigation of it, you know, to, because pain is a concept, right? The sensations that we're having are probably more distinctly observed as like stabbing, or dullness, or throbbing, or heaviness, or something like that, that are much more precise or distinct than pain. So it might be interesting to investigate it a little bit more. And then to, um, but you know, pain isn't some kind of really virtuous quality to have. It's interesting, you know, so it can hold our attention for a while, which is probably its greatest strength is that it holds our attention. But, um, you know, if we want to move to relieve the pain, that's, that's wise, you know. Uh, the person who deserves our love and our compassion more than anybody else is ourselves. Well, we deserve our love and compassion as much as anybody else deserves it and not less than anybody else. So if we're in pain, we can absolutely, with a you know, wholesome heart, say, hey, I want to get out of this pain. And what we do is we see, you know, first we want to see the intention to move, like, oh, yeah, that sensation is making me want to move. And so you acknowledge the wanting to move and then you move. A lot of times, you know, probably 99% of our lives, uh, Vedana, you know, that feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, which is one of the strongest forces in our lives, you know, according to the suttas, that is one of the strongest things that totally runs our life. Uh, you know, that we react to that and are after that and don't even realize that that's what we're doing. You know, that chasing pleasant, running away from unpleasant, you know, it is in uh, one of our highest suttas, the um, Dependent Origination Sutta, about how things are running is that contact with anything and then Vedana, because Vedana is a universal mental factor. Feeling tone is always pleasant. And um, 
you know, it's always pleasant with everything. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And actually, um, you know, neutral feeling tone is something really to watch out for too because when neutral feeling tone is there, sometimes we experience it as boredom. And you know what we do when we're bored, when we don't even realize it, that's when we stop making up sto- start making up stories. That's when our pleasant fantasies start arising. And you know, these things are um, very common mental habit patterns in our mind, right? And you know, sitting right where you're sitting, I saw my very common mental habit pattern when I would get a lot of um, a lot of neutral feeling tone. Uh, I would have a what I would start doing, and it was totally unconscious to me. I would start having fantasy. I would start having fantasy thoughts, and it was all what kind of fantasy was it? It was romantic fantasy. <laughs> it's so interesting. I don't know if any. Am I the only one that does that? <laughs> Has anyone in the room said, oh my God, that person over there is my next partner? (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, the opposite can happen too, is that you start having fantasies about who you hate in the room. Vipassana romances and Vipassana vendettas. VRs and VVs, it's a very common experience of meditating. And it often is tied to to, um, neutral feeling tone. Um, Winnie pointed out a brilliant thing this morning, I think it was over lunch or in the staff dining room, was that neutral Vedana also feels a lot like and is related to calm and tranquility. And a lot of times, you know, we miss that similarity there. I remember sometimes in long retreats, people will come in and say, you know, I feel like I still have sloth and torpor. I've been sitting here a month, and I still have a lot of sloth and torpor. And my question is, are you sure it's not tranquility and calm? Because <laughs> the two can actually feel a lot alike. So that's something to really look out for. Definitely look out for neutral feeling tone. And if you can notice, um, you know, pleasant feeling tone and unpleasant feeling tone. And, you know, really note that, that this experience I'm having right now is unpleasant Vedana, unpleasant feeling tone, also known as pain. Another interesting thing about uh, the Satipatthana Sutta and this practice, and one thing that I'm sure other teachers have brought up about Vedana, but uh, Analyo talks about it very distinctly, is that there are, you know, two types of Vedana, There is worldly Vedana and unworldly Vedana. Unworldly Vedana. And that's actually a very wholesome thing. Uh, You know, unworldly pleasant Vedana, which is, you know, the bliss of meditation or the bliss of generosity, the bliss of having, you know, really positive mental qualities in the mind. Those are incredibly wholesome, positive pleasant sensations to have. And that's the ones that we really want to build up and strengthen because those are really wholesome things and they bring a huge amount of pleasure to us. It's amazing how much pleasure there is. Um, and there is unpleasant, uh, unpleasant Vedana, unworldly unpleasant Vedana too. A lot of times during retreat like this, 
you know, the first few days of retreat, I don't know if any of you are having this, we call it the detox period. <laughs> Where all the suppressed emotions we haven't wanted to feel are saying, hey, what about me? I'm coming up now. Look at me. Here I am. I'm stuck down there. Let me up. You know, all of the grief or anger or um, dissatisfaction, you know, all of these really strong emotions that we have not allowed ourselves to feel because they would, you know, disrupt our life too much. When we're meditating, when we allow what's happening in our heart and mind and in our body to be seen, oftentimes those things will come up. And I often, well, personally, I always have, you know, depending on how long the retreat is, a period of sobbing meditation and stomping meditation. (laughs) You know, just to let those emotions out. And they're fine, you know, you can just love yourself while you're having it. Remember yourself as a two or three year old and have a sobbing meditation and, you know, bring your best metta. Or even, I like to imagine my benefactor, you know, the Buddha's there holding me, or uh, Tunan Sin, you know, the earth goddess, blessed virgin, is holding me while I am doing that. So those are very, uh, those are, um, I don't know if the sobbing and stomping are uh, unworldly, but they're worldly, but it's great to let them come up and be gone. But there are unworldly, um, unpleasant sensations like Kiri and Otapa, which is shame of wrongdoing, remembering things that we've done and having a lot of shame of it. Oh my God, I can't believe I caused that harm. That comes up a lot on retreat, particularly in longer retreats. And uh, fear of wrongdoing, of not wanting to, um, not wanting to do anything that's harmful. Actually, I just heard this other term recently that really resonated with me. I don't know if any of you have heard it. Uh, moral injury. Have you heard of this? I love this moral injury. It's actually thought to be part, a bit, huge part of burnout. You know, we do a job or we're in maybe the service profession or we're doing something and we see that we're in a system that's not quite right. You know, I work in higher education and You know, it's getting much more and more kind of a corporate identity. It looks like a for-profit endeavor. There's no, you know, public education's not available as much as it used to be. And, you know, I work in the system, and I think part of what it is is I'm getting burned out working there. But actually, it might be moral injury that that's against my own ethics and why I want to work in that field. So it's not just burnout. It's moral injury. And you can Google that. There's a lot on that. Z-Dog MD. <laughs> Moral injury. I loved it when I saw it. So that's Vedana, the second foundation of mindfulness. One of the most important things to know. Uh, in fact, if you take an action and then go back to what was the intention or motivation for me to do that action, a lot of times there will be pleasant, seeking after pleasant, pushing away unpleasant, or spacing out in neutral will be what happened right before you took that. That's a really good thing to look at while we're doing our um, practice here, our retreat practice. So what to do about pain? I actually said this once on retreat and one of my fellow teachers got so mad at me, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
If you need to, take a Tylenol if you believe in that. It's fine. I always take Tylenol the first couple of days of retreat because it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Am I the only one? And then the third foundation of mindfulness we know is mindfulness of thoughts and emotions and, and mind states. And I say mind states, I want to put that out there because a mind state is almost like a, uh, a cloud in the mind or a state of mind that absolutely impacts what our perception is. And we probably know this when we're in a bad mood. A bad mood is kind of like a mind state that no matter who we're with or what we're seeing, we're seeing the worst of that thing right away, right? Like, you know, this lobster, are you kidding me? There's not enough lemons, <laughs> you know, or something. Something that we really love and want, you know. If we have a mind state of irritation or negativity, we're going to see the uh, worst thing about it right away. But... Um, you know, uh, thoughts and emotions are the third foundation of mindfulness. And how do we hold that? So I taught a three-unit graduate course in mindfulness in the spring quarter. And I think it was like on the next to last day, I talked about mindfulness being like awareness at the train station and seeing uh, thoughts as trains passing by. And the question is, are you going to get on the train or are you going to watch the train? And I couldn't believe it. Half of my students said, oh, now I understand that, <laughs> about what mindfulness of thoughts are. And I was surprised that that was such a, you know, that that was such an, you know, important conception to get out there, that you can actually be aware of thoughts and not be totally on the thought train. But that's what we're doing here with thoughts is, you know, we're just watching thoughts as they arise and pass away. And they do that. I mean, that's one thing to see them. To see about thoughts is that, you know, they're not there all the time. And, you know, the thoughts are different as they come and go. And to see, um, you know, the beginning of a thought, usually, you know, if you're looking, if you're making the third foundation of mindfulness or mindfulness of thoughts your anchor, which you can absolutely do. And I actually do that when I'm thinking too much. I'll make uh, the third foundation my anchor and I will look for thoughts. You know, how, how are they arising? What's happening here? Um, you know, and if they're there, you can notice if they're wholesome or unwholesome. That's a very important thing to notice. If you're feeding, if they're good wolf thoughts or bad wolf thoughts, you know, it's an important thing to see. To know the roots of the thoughts and the emotions behind it. To know if that thought is one of the thousand manifestations of greed and hatred and ignorance, delusion. Or whether that thought or emotion or mind state is one of the ten paramis, a really wholesome, positive thing. It's important to know that too. So the Buddha asked, if a person is struck by an arrow, is that painful? Yes. The, the Buddha then asked, if the person is struck by a second arrow, is that even more painful? Of course. He went on to say, that as long as we are alive, we can expect painful experiences. The first arrow 
we will, you know, being human, having unpleasant sensations is absolutely part of the game. You know, that's part of how imperfection, impermanence, and not-self arise. Um, But the pain that we have, you know, we add more pain with the second arrow of thinking, oh, this shouldn't be happening, or this shouldn't be happening to me, or this is wrong. You know, all of the rumination thoughts that we have about first arrows or the things that we can absolutely have insight about, you know, not realizing the truth of impermanence or imperfection, you know, wanting things to be different than their inherent nature, you know, that's where a lot of confusion and uh, suffering arises from. Seeing clearly the true nature of, of all conditioned existence as imperfect and impermanent. You know, okay, I'll, this might be TMI, but... So I'm, you know, retiring from the university in a year, and, you know, I've had research, you know, research um, projects for the last 25 years of my life where, you know, we write grants and we get grants and we have people working for us. And my, my staff, who I've been working with for like 15 years, realized that I wasn't going to write another five-year NIH grant. <laughs> and so they started looking for other work. You know, they had to keep themselves because, you know, they're all funded by soft money. And so they got together and went out after these grants that weren't research grants, but they didn't tell me about it. And I thought, you know, I was taking that as, I, you know, experienced that as a real betrayal of me and a disrespect until I had a meeting with the person I thought who was in charge of it just a few days ago, and it was the warmest, most wonderful meeting. And I realized all of those stories in my head about what was happening were absolute stories. And, that, you know, my pain had been caused by my lack of understanding and my hab- habitual, you know, uh, pretty much my habitual self-pity victim identity. You know, that's one identity that I saw so clearly sitting where you're sitting right now at a three-month retreat, how much I um, construct myself as a victim of what's happening around me. And that was what happened and, you know, what was the root of all of those stories I told about that. And as soon as I realized that, wow, there was so much freedom of that. Just realizing how much of the stories we have about this or that are not really the truth of what's going on. Or is that only me? (laughs) So that is uh, mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. You know, don't get on the train, just see what they are. Most, uh, you know, habitual thoughts and emotions that we'll have, uh, a lot of thoughts and emotions we have will be the same ones over and over again. And it's good to give them a name so you can decondition those. Like, my romantic fantasy was so common. I just called it RF. Like, I see you, RF. You know, here you come again, RF. And then it would just go because I knew I was doing that. So it's good to name it, like, you know, victim status or superior status. Like, I am so much better than everybody else in this or that or some of that. And then there's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And what's so important about that when they're all so important uh, is the five hindrances. And whenever I'm struggling on the cushion, 
I think that doing a five hindrance check is a wonderful thing to do. Like, what hindrance is this right now if I'm struggling? And just to remind us all, there's two pairs that are kind of opposites each other. There is um, sloth and torpor, which is so common the first day of retreat. Anybody having that? (laughs) Everybody's having it. Uh, if you're paying attention, you're probably feeling some sloth and torpor, exactly. But that is so common. I mean, that's what happens. And then the opposite of that is restlessness and worry. <laughs> Anybody having that one? Yeah, we're having all of that one, too. But it's excellent to see that, you know, to see the train of restlessness and worry coming down and in front of us. Don't get on it and let it go, right? We see the beginning, middle, and end of it with some objectivity. And, you know, the strength of our mindfulness will determine that. If you're getting caught up in a lot of thinking, it's probably because your mindfulness isn't very strong. And what you need to do when that happens is to get more strength. So go back to your anchor for a while. And, you know, you can use the breath as an anchor. Uh, Body scanning is an excellent anchor to build strength. Meta phrases, doing loving kindness phrases for 15 minutes at the beginning of a sitting. Excellent concentration beginning of a sitting. And that will allow you to see, you know, the thoughts as they come and not get so wrapped up in them. That's what we want to do. And it'll, you know, it'll let us see the five hindrances. Sleepiness, restlessness and worry. And then the other two are so foundational to being human. Aversion, you know, whatever, not wanting something to be happening or greed, wanting, wanting something else to be happening. And then uh, the fifth one is a doubt, like, am I doing this right? I still ask myself that. Am I doing this right? Uh, Or do those teachers know what they're talking about? (laughs) That comes up a lot. (laughs) And then, um, it's just a practice for me, you know, just a lot of speculative doubt. You know, the Buddha said, people would ask the Buddha questions about theoretical long questions about things, and he would ask, he would say to them, what does that have to do with your suffering right now? You know, he said, let go of speculative thought. Let go of it, you know, and you can tell that beautiful thinking mind of yours. I love you, thinking mind. You are so badass, but I will catch up with you on Monday afternoon. (laughs) Let it go for while you're here. Let it go and, you know, appreciate it, but say not now, speculative thought, not now, thinking mind. Monday afternoon, we are so going to hang out, you know, let it go, but know that you'll come back to it. And then I want to say something in my last few minutes about the seven factors of awakening. It is so important for us to know when really positive, wholesome mind states are are in us uh, that we're experiencing them because that is feeding the good wolf. We want to feed the good wolf and just knowing that we have calm and tranquility. So the seven factors of awakening... Uh, The first one, of course, is our wonderful mindfulness. That's the balancing factor. And there's three arousing factors and three calming factors. And the arousing factors, the first one is 
just having a, uh, and it's a mental factor, it's a factor, uh, investigation and rise, just being curious about something, right? We know what that feels like to say, oh my gosh, you know, curiosity about something, what is that? We want to investigate it. We want to look more deeply into that. When that is in your mind, you should know that's in your mind. Because knowing it and feeling it, uh, you know, what we're doing with the seven factors of awakening, we're turning mind states into mind traits. We're feeding that wolf and making that be the strong mental factor that arises as we walk in the world, right? We're making that stronger and making that to be what these hearts and minds are really composed of. So knowing when investigation and curiosity is there. And, you know, when you're curious and interested in something, you don't need to tell yourself, well, you better put more energy into that because energy arises with that, right? So knowing that energy is arising and say, wow, look at this natural energy arising with interest and effort. And you know what's interesting? You know what uh, arises when you have interest, energy, and effort? You know what arises next? Joy. Actually, joy arises or, you know, and it's really, and I experience joy as a, as a mind state. You know, you can feel the mind state of it. It's like a cloud of joy. Uh, I've had the most uh, deep thoughts of grief. And, you know, I remember when my mother died, I was holding incredible grief for her loss within a field of joy. It was so interesting to see that that's possible to do. So to feel, you know, to know that you're experiencing that joy and that contentment. And actually that leads to the, so those are the three calming factors, interest, effort, joy. And that leads to calm and tranquility. And to know that you have calm and tranquility, oh, this is the mind state of calm and tranquility to know that and turn that passing state into a mental trait to make that stronger, to feed the calm tranquility wolf and say, here, I'm going to give you some food, the food of attention to make that a stronger mental factor. And then um, calmness and tranquility turns into concentration. It turns in the ability to stay with an object uh, you know, you're able to stay with an object and you're not carried off so much. And to know when you're concentrated or, um, concentration is not such a great uh, translation, I think. It's more like collectedness of mind. Your mind is collected, the energy is there, and it's, your energy is not getting lost on thinking or a lot of other things. You know, you're able to stay with uh, an object and that allows you to see it more clearly. And actually that uh, leads to the third uh, calming equi- uh, enlightenment factor, and that is equanimity. And equanimity is one of the most profound spiritual qualities in any of our traditions. Equanimity is to be able to be okay and let in anything. You know, we can take in anything and not have it lead to wanting to harm or wanting to indulge, you know we can take it in with some wisdom and some kindness and equanimity. So, I mean, I think the Buddha was the best psychologist ever. And, uh, you know, I do psychiatric epidemiology as a living and 
I think Buddhist psychology is so much more advanced than anything I've seen in Western psych. It is really profound. And it's all free. Don't you love that? Yeah, let me give you a tip. You can Google any of these words, space PDF, and you'll go straight to something you can download. You should always put space PDF when you're Googling anything. And then if you want, you know, the quick version, you should put space PPT. (laughs) Then you won't have to read the whole thing. (laughs) Anyway, that is uh, my talk on mindfulness. Incredibly profound practice. And let's do it. And when we don't want to do it, we should see that as a version and keep doing it anyway. So let's sit for a minute. May the positive energies of our practice lead to our own awakening and be for the benefit of all beings in all directions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.